This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. It's 1910 in Moscow, Russia. Detective Arkady Kashko puffs on his cigarette and glances towards the Kursky rail station. The outside of the building is an impressive sight, a nod to the power of the motherland. Stone pillars hold up an intricately decorated portico, and there are rows of expansive windows surrounded by ornate stonework. Early morning commuters emerge from a cavernous doorway. It's just past 7 a.m., and the sky is dark and gloomy. Koshko drops the butt of his cigarette and stomps on it before heading inside to the station. The concourse is lit by rows of gas lamps. Smartly dressed men and women get off newly arrived trains. They'll buy breakfast from the kiosks that line the perimeter of the building before making their way to their place of business. Some already have their umbrellas open in preparation for the falling rain outside. Koshko walks to the platform that's been roped off where there's an empty train waiting for him. The station master approaches and directs him to one of the first-class cabins. And then he leaves. He's done his part. Now, it's the Koshko Show. The detective steps onto the train and slides open a compartment door. Immediately, he can smell the metallic tang of blood that hangs in the air. It doesn't take a genius to understand where it's coming from. Lying on the bed is a man. He's around 45 years old. His arm hangs off the edge, his long fingers brushing the floor. An expensive watch is wrapped around his wrist, and his shirt and pants look like they cost a pretty penny, too. He appears to be in deep, untroubled sleep, except there's a dagger sticking out of his chest, and his crisp white shirt is covered in blood. Kashko takes a closer look at the dead man. He's surprised how peaceful the man's face is. There aren't any defensive injuries on his hands, and it appears he was in no position to put up a fight. This man was almost certainly stabbed to death as he slept. Kashko digs in the man's pockets, hoping to unearth some form of identification. He's out of luck. There's no ID, but there is something. He finds a wallet and a handkerchief, both monogrammed with the letter K. The wallet contains a mere 275 rubles, and the handkerchief appears to be a brand new one. It's wrinkled and creased, but it's unused. In the right pocket of his pants comes the most intriguing find. It's a solid silver cigar case decorated with two gold ornaments. One is the figure of a naked woman, and the other is a cat with little emeralds for eyes. Gripping it carefully, Koshko examines the case further. On the back, there are two drops of blood and a smudged fingerprint. Koshko is unsure of what drove someone to kill the man while he slept. If it was robbery, 
Surely the attacker would have taken the wallet, the expensive watch, or the cigar case. So where does this leave him? Was the murder driven by revenge? And exactly who is the dead man with a dagger in his chest? I'm Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're in Moscow, following in the footsteps of Detective Arkady Kashko, Russia's most famous detective. When the body of a man is found stabbed in a sleeper carriage, there are more questions than clues. There's no way to identify him, and seemingly, no motive for this murder. Most detectives would be stumped, but Arkady Kashko isn't like most detectives. Can Russia's greatest detective get to the bottom of the case before the killer strikes again? From Noiser, this is the story of the murder on the Moscow Express. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. With his bushy mustache, dark eyes, and enormous frame, Arkady Koshko might sound like the archetypal tough guy detective. You know, the type that uses violence and intimidation to tease out a confession. But this couldn't be farther from the truth. He's a calm, thoughtful man who quickly earns the respect of those he comes in contact with. Koshko's rise through the police force was meteoric. Born in Belarus, he worked his way through the ranks in Minsk before transferring to Latvia. His talents were quickly spotted by the Russian police. Corruption was rife in the force, and the solution rate of crimes at an all-time low. He needed a leader who could turn the tide against both the criminals and the dirty police officers. Kashko was the man for the job. Russia at the turn of the century was a tough place to live. Famine was widespread, peasants finding it difficult to live off their own land due to severe climate conditions and lack of technology, flocked to the cities in hopes of work. This led to overcrowding and the spreading of disease. Anger grew over Tsar Nicholas II's poor leadership, and crime rates began to grow. The police were ill-equipped to deal with the increase in robberies and murders, but the steely Kashko brought order to the streets of Moscow and weeded out the cops who were only in the job for personal gain. He also brought a variety of new techniques to the role, like undercover work. In order to infiltrate a gang of con men, he'd spend months learning cards from gamblers already in custody. When he was ready, he donned makeup and some tattered clothing, challenging the gambling sharks to card games. Eventually, he worked his way up to a duel with the boss. During their game, a group of officers burst into the room and arrested the leader. Thanks to Kashko, the gang that roamed the streets of the city for years were finally rounded up and imprisoned. Kashko also played a key role in developing the use of fingerprinting in solving crimes, a technique that law enforcement all over the world still uses today and one that plays a big part in this investigation. 
Before leaving the station, Koshko interrogates the conductor of the train. He tells the detective that the last time he saw the dead man was in Tula. That's a town around 125 miles away from Moscow. The victim bought a box of gingerbread from a food stall on the station's platform and made his way back to his carriage. Now, the murder was only discovered when the train reached Moscow. It's not much to go on, but at least Koshko has a time frame for the killing. Arriving back at the police station, Koshko decides that identifying the dead man is the most pressing matter. He posts an advertisement in all of the Moscow papers. He lists what the dead man looks like and the personal effects found in his pockets. The papers won't be in circulation until the morning. So while he waits, he once again studies the cigar case. The fingerprints on the back of the case are the only real evidence he has. All right, now, let's just pause here for a minute. While using fingerprints to catch criminals is pretty commonplace these days, back in 1910, technique was relatively new. The first murder to be solved using this method only happened 18 years earlier, over in Argentina. Police forces across the world adopted the technique soon after. It began playing a bigger role in arrests and convictions, especially as the probability of a false positive was calculated at 1 in 64 billion. The Russian police force has been dragging their feet with the technique, though. That is until Koshko got wind of it, which is great news for this story. Okay, now, Koshko knows that the case could be won or lost by identifying who the prince belonged to. So, he takes the silver case to the station's fingerprint expert. The fingerprint analyst takes the cigar case from Koshko and lays it on the table. He pours some black powder onto it letting it settle before blowing it off again. The thin layer remains stuck on the metal surface, exposing the fingerprint in greater detail. Koshko can now make out the intricate spirals and swirls of a thumb mark, but who does it belong to? The station is home to a small database of fingerprints collected from criminals. Koshko sets out about working through them now. It's painstaking work comparing ridges and patterns of each print. And when night falls, well, it seems all the effort was in vain. The print on the cigar case isn't a match for any known offenders. With that avenue explored, all Koshko can do now is hope someone turns up to claim the dead man. The next day, Koshko is sitting in his office filling in paperwork when he hears a knock at the door. A woman enters and sits in the chair opposite him. There are tears in her eyes. She thinks the dead man is her husband. He went away on business a few days earlier and should have returned on the train the day the body was found. He matches the description, but more importantly, he owns the distinctive cigar case. Or rather, he did. She explains that he lost it a week earlier in Moscow fell right out of his pocket. So, if it is him, how did he come to find it again? Eager to learn the identity of his victim, Koshko accompanies the crying lady to see the body. She takes a couple of tentative steps towards the metal gurney and lets out a loud gasp when she sets eyes on the dead man. 
Imagine Koshko's surprise when the woman exclaims she doesn't recognize him. It's not her husband. So, how did this still unknown dead man come to be in possession of her husband's cigar case? And where has her husband gone? The detective doesn't know what to think. Had he come by the cigar case innocently? Did he find it on the street? Or had he stolen it before he died? Was that the reason for this murder? Kashko thanks the woman for coming in, wishes her well finding her husband, and heads back to the office. He's hoping that someone else will claim the body soon. Luckily, he doesn't have that long to wait. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. That evening, the detective receives another visitor. The man introduces himself as Strendman. He's a co-owner of the jewelry store in the center of Moscow, just down the street from the famous Bolshoi Theater, home to the world-renowned ballet company. Strindman's worried because his business partner, a man named Ozalan, was supposed to return from Rostov the day before, but he hasn't showed up. He explains to Kashko that the purpose of his trip was to purchase an expensive diamond necklace from a private seller. Kashko leads Strindman to the mortuary where he confirms that the dead man is indeed Ozalan. Finally, the body's been identified. But now, the revelation about the necklace surprises Koshko. Obviously, it wasn't in his possession when the detective checked his pockets. A team of detectives combed the train compartment once Koshko left for any hidden items or clues, but came away empty-handed. The necklace was definitely not on the train, so it seems robbery was the motive after all. But what about the monogrammed wallet in Ozalan's pocket? What about the watch and the cigar case? If the motive was robbery, why weren't those items taken as well? Had the thief put the items there as a decoy, as a way to trick the police? If so, it worked. Now Koshko has to make up for lost time. Back in his office, Koshko has a few more questions for Strindman. He asks, who else was privy to information about the trip and the diamond necklace? And the only other person to know about the purpose of the business trip is their salesman, Aronov. Koshko asks if the salesman could be behind the theft. Strindman shakes his head. Aronov is a good employee. He trusts him implicitly. There's no way he would murder his boss and steal the diamond necklace. Koshko nods sympathetically. But he's been a detective for a long time. 
He knows that when money's involved, all bets are off. The nighttime skies of the city are thick with cloud, and only a couple of stars can be seen twinkling against the inky blackness. A horse-drawn cart trundles down the street and comes to a stop outside the station. Three silhouetted figures descend from the cab. Two police officers and Koshko's newest suspect, Aronoff. The officers lead Aronoff to Detective Koshko's office, who offers him a seat and tells him to relax. The young man's around 20 years old and shaking like a leaf. Do you have something to hide? Is his obvious fear a sign of guilt? Or is he just nervous about being in the presence of the great detective? With a quivering voice, he tells Koshko that he knew the reason for Ozalan's business trip. It was nothing out of the ordinary. High-priced pieces of jewelry arrived in the store frequently and left just as quickly. Aronov liked his job and wouldn't risk it by doing something stupid like killing the boss. Koshko asks Aronov if he ever told anyone about the expensive necklace in Ozalan's possession. He shakes his head and claims he never told another soul. Koshko's inclined to believe the young man, but still, he insists that Aronov is fingerprinted. The detective isn't all that surprised when the prints don't match those found on the cigar case. After a few more rudimentary questions, Koshko lets Aronoff go. And now, the detective is back at square one. It's frustrating. Aronoff was the only name Strindman could provide. Koshko doesn't have the necklace, suspects, or even a lead. But he's been in this situation before, and he knows that sometimes you just have to get a little creative. And so, before he goes home for the night, he types up another advertisement for the morning papers. The announcement offers a reward of 1,000 rubles to the person who can provide a clue to the whereabouts of a lost cigar case. He details the cigar case's features and signs the ad using the name of one of his female undercover agents, Vera Neznamova. He's hoping that someone might have seen the distinctive cigar case in the buildup to the murder. Now, he's not expecting the killer to come forward. They would know that the cigar case was found on the dead man. But maybe a friend noticed someone with a sparkly new case. Or a family member admired it in the window of a thrift shop before buying it. It's a shot in the dark. But Koshko has set enough traps in his life to know that sometimes all you need is a little bit of luck. Two days later, Koshko's trusted undercover agent, Vera Neznamova, is sitting at a piano, her fingers moving deftly over the keys. Her elegant silk gown reaches the floor, and there are colorful flowers in her hair. For this sting, Koshko told her to pose as the owner of the fine cigar case. So she needs to look like she has money. She's used to adopting different roles at short notice. This time, She's chosen the character of an up-and-coming singer. It's one way to put her musical proficiency to use. Suddenly, 
She hears heavy footsteps on the street outside. A couple of seconds later, there's a knock at the door. Neznimova's partner, posing as one of her butlers, answers. He leads a young man into the living room. He's shabbily dressed and covered in grime, probably around 18 years old. Neznimova asks to be left alone with the visitor, and the butler duly obliges. He backs out of the room with a low bow and closes the door behind him. The visitor introduces himself as Simon. He tells the undercover cop that he's seen the cigar case recently and describes it in detail. He even includes features that Koshko kept secret from the public. Neznimova believes that Simon is the man behind the murder. If he's been in possession of the cigar case recently, it has to be him, right? Otherwise, how could he know such intimate details? She thanks him for his information and crosses the room. She pulls a purse from a drawer and watches as Simon's eyes light up at the prospect of 1,000 rubles. But instead of handing him the money, she calls out to her butler. Immediately, he bursts through the door so hard it almost falls off its hinges. All his good manners are gone, his face is set, and he's pointing a rifle directly at Simon's chest. Spooked by the gun and the sudden threat of violence, Simon immediately starts pleading his innocence, but Neznimova doesn't want to hear it. She slaps a pair of cuffs on his wrists and leads him out of the house to a waiting police car. Half an hour later, Simon is brought into Koshko's office. Before the detective can speak, Simon runs to his desk and tells him he has nothing to do with what he's been accused of. He tells Koshko that he's a religious man who wouldn't harm a fly. He just spotted an opportunity to make a little easy money. That's all. Koshko invites the boy to sit down so that he can dig a little deeper into his story. He reiterates that the cigar case is a part of a murder investigation. If Simon is innocent, how could he have seen the case so recently? Simon tells Koshko that he works in a watchmaker's shop on Vashvizhinka Street. He's an apprentice there, eager to learn an honest trade. His master, a man named Fyodorov, bought the cigar case from a passing soldier for 24 rubles a week before the murder. He placed it in the window, hoping to sell it on for profit. And then, one day, it was gone. Simon checked the ledgers. It hadn't been sold. He figured Fyodorov had taken it to market or simply kept it for himself. Koshko's interviewed a lot of liars in his lifetime. They tend to trip over their own words and details of change over time. Looking into the apprentice watchmaker's eyes, Koshko is inclined to believe that Simon is innocent of the crime. Fyodorov, however, has some explaining to do. Koshko sends two of his officers to fetch Simon's boss. Is the watchmaker going to be just another small cog in the investigation? Or is Koshko about to come face to face with a stone-cold killer? Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. 
made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today, But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. About an hour later, Fyodorov strides into Koshko's office. He's a bear of a man, tall with a wide face and an unpleasant expression in his eyes sits in front of the detective and smirks. Koshko holds the cigar case in front of Fyodorov's face. At the sight of the little silver box, some of Fyodorov's cockiness is lost, but only for a second. He tells Koshko that he bought the cigar case from a soldier, just as Simon said. He liked the design and figured he could make a pretty decent profit, which he did, and quickly. The very next day, he sold it to a random customer, who he'd never seen before. Koshko asked why the sale wasn't recorded in a ledger. And Fyodorov shrugs. He must have forgotten to make a note of it. It happens from time to time, especially when his shop is busy and he's tending to the place on his own. It just seems like too much of a coincidence, doesn't it? I mean, Fyodorov comes into possession of the cigar case a week before the murder, then sells it to a stranger who he can't remember or even begin to describe. Yeah, right. Koshko doesn't believe him for a second and orders that Fyodorov be fingerprinted. The watchmaker obliges and seems calm through the whole affair. A short while later, Koshko receives the analysis of the prints. Fyodorov's are an exact match for the ones found on the cigar case. But the revelation doesn't affect Fyodorov in any way. He laughs at the accusation that he's a murderer and dismisses it as nonsense. Yeah, he handled the cigar case, but only in his role as a salesman. That was no secret. Surely it would be stranger if his prints weren't on it. Fyodorov's argument holds a lot of weight. And what's more, the jury would agree, the fingerprint is circumstantial at best. Now, an easy arrest feels like it's slipping away from Koshko, but the detective is convinced of Fyodorov's guilt. Just needs another way to prove it. Luckily, Koshko's an innovative kind of detective, the type who can roll with the punches. 
He has an idea that he hopes will blow the case wide open. Koshko calls for Simon again. He tells the young man that he'll be sent to prison if he isn't 100% honest with the detective. Simon's face loses all its color. He assures the policeman he'll tell him only the truth. Simon reveals that Fyodorov is not a rich man and his business isn't doing so well. He rarely leaves the shop, preferring to leave the messenger jobs to others. Except for last week, Simon reveals Fyodorov disappeared for a day and offered no explanation for his leave. Koshko pushes Simon to remember which day. Could it have been the day of the murder? The apprentice racks his brains and eventually nods. Koshko's already had officers search Fyodorov's shop. There's no sign of the diamond necklace. So could Fyodorov be hiding the missing jewelry somewhere? Maybe with a friend, perhaps, or, or a lover? Simon doesn't think so. You see, Fyodorov isn't a popular man, doesn't have a wife, or even many friends. Certainly none that Simon can name. The only person Fyodorov spends time with is his mother. He goes there regularly. Simon's even been there a couple times to deliver some leftover merchandise from the store. Now this gives Koshko an idea. Fyodorov would be stashing stolen goods at his mother's house? If so, it's bad news. His mother lives in the suburbs in a large house with a vast yard. The necklace stolen from Ozalan could be hidden anywhere, even if the police could get a warrant for a search. It isn't certain that the diamonds would be located. The detective needs to approach the search from another angle. He begins drawing up a plan in order to catch Fyodorov's mother in the act of stashing stolen goods. He needs Simon to help and offers the boy 100 rubles to take part in the sting. He also tells the apprentice that it's likely he won't have a job in the event Fyodorov's arrested. If that happens, Koshko promises to find Simon a new one. Eager to be part of the undercover operation, Simon agrees. Koshko sends two of his officers to a jewelry store, asking them to bring back some fake diamonds. An hour later, they hand the detective a bag full of earrings, bracelets, and rings. If Koshko didn't know they were fake, he'd swear to it that they were the real deal. He hands them to Simon and reveals his plan. Now all they can do is wait for nightfall. It's just past eight in the evening. A full moon hangs low in the sky, casting a soft glow over the city. The swell of an orchestra and a soaring soprano drifts from a neoclassical opera house. Horse-drawn carts carry mustached men to bars in the center of town. But Simon sees nothing of this. He hurries to Fyodoro's mother's house and pauses in front of the door. He builds his courage and raps on the heavy wood. A minute later, she opens the door and looks at him expectantly. Simon pulls a dirty handkerchief from his pocket and hands it to her. A gust of wind disturbs the trees, but the quiet jangle of jewelry is audible over the rustle of leaves. 
He hands the bundle over with a conspiratorial nod. Viadoro's mother takes the bundle from Simon and promises to do exactly as her son usually instructs her to. She slips the package into her own pocket, bids Simon good night, and closes the door. Simon turns and retreats out of the garden as casually as he can. He's done his part. Now he has to hope that the mother does hers. Kashko's trusted deputy, Muratov, watches him from the shadows as Simon disappears around the corner of the street. Then he climbs behind Fyodorov's mother's fence and settles in to watch. From his vantage point, he has a perfect view of both the front and backyards of Mama Fyodorov's. Above him, clouds obscure the moon and darkness descends. Inside the yard, there's no movement. He waits for an hour and begins to lose hope. Maybe she's hiding the jewels inside. This is a big house, and there are probably hundreds of places to safely conceal a small bag of jewelry. Suddenly, just after 10, there's a movement. The back door opens, and a slice of light from inside spills out onto the dewy grass. Silhouetted in the doorway is the mother. She stands for a while, looking around, as if sensing she's being watched. However, her apprehension doesn't last long. She closes the door and shuffles across the garden to a dilapidated shed. The door opens with a loud creak. She disappears inside. A second later, she emerges with a shovel. Then she walks across to a well in the far corner of the yard. Rusting the shovel into the earth beside the well, she starts to dig. Grunts of exertion are carried on the breeze. After a couple of minutes, she casts the shovel aside and gets down on her hands and knees. From the hole, she pulls a cookie box. There's a quiet scrape of metal on metal, and the top comes off in her hand. She pulls Simon's filthy handkerchief from her pocket and stuffs it in the rectangular box. In a matter of minutes, she replaces the box and covers it again in soil. For good measure, she strews some trash over the area to make it look undisturbed. Murato stifles a laugh. The sight of an old woman digging in the darkness and stowing stolen goods, it's almost unbelievable. If Muratov hadn't seen it with his own eyes, he might not have believed it really happened. The mother replaces the shovel in the shed, locks it, and then retreats into her house without so much as a backward glance. At first light, Muratov knocks on the door and surprises the mother with an arrest warrant. She feigns the look of surprise and claims to know nothing about any stolen jewelry. Her resistance is quickly broken as Muratov marches straight to the spot beside the well, clears away the trash, digs up the cookie box. The silvery box glimmers in the early morning sun. A clump of dirt clings to the side. Muratov wipes it away and eases the top off. It's the moment of truth. And there, lying at the bottom of the tin, 
is the beautiful diamond necklace belonging to the murdered man of Zalin. Later that morning, Kaisko congratulates his deputy on an exemplary undercover operation. With the precious necklace in his possession, Kaisko has everything he needs to make the arrest. He calls for Fyodorov to be sent to his office once more and waits. A couple of minutes later, Fyodorov enters the room, his eyes settled on the diamond necklace placed prominently on Kashko's desk. His shoulders slump. He knows the game is up. Faced with the prospect of prison, Fyodorov spills his guts. His business hadn't been doing so well, and he was struggling to make ends meet. One afternoon, shortly before the murder, Fyodorov meets with Aronov, the salesman that Kashko interviewed at the start of the investigation. Aronov told him, quite innocently, about Ozalan's trip to retrieve the expensive diamond necklace. It was just small talk on Aronov's part. Not for Fyodorov. That was the moment the plan to murder Ozalan began. Two days later, Fyodorov slipped onto a train in Tula. He watched Ozalan buy some food from a stall on the platform and then make his way back to his compartment. That night, under the cover of darkness, Fyodoro slipped into Ozalan's chamber and stabbed him while he slept. Ozalan died instantly. Fyodoro found the necklace in Ozalan's jacket pocket and stashed it in his own. Then the deception began. He replaced Ozalan's own wallet with the one featuring the monogrammed K in the hope that the police would misidentify the body. He stuffed the handkerchief and the cigar case in another pocket and left. Now it looked like nothing was taken and the motive for the crime would be unclear. But he hadn't banked on that silver cigar case leading to his downfall. With insurmountable evidence against him, Fyodorov is sentenced to eight years of hard labor in the inhospitable wilds of Siberia. The case may well be wrapped up, but Kashko still has one thing left to do. True to his word, he helps Simon find a new job. However, Simon's interest in watchmaking has disappeared. Having watched Kashko deliver justice for the murder of Zalin, Simon's inspired to become a police officer. Solving the murder of Ozalan further enhances Kashko's already impressive career. He receives personal praise from Tsar Nicholas II. However, Kashko isn't interested in the plaudits. He's living his boyhood dream of catching criminals and cleaning up the streets. And that's reward enough. All of this changes in 1917 as the Russian Revolution ushers in an era of transition and uncertainty. The police service is deemed unnecessary and is abolished. Prisoners are freed from jail cells and run riot in the streets. Organized chaos rules across the country. Fearing for his life, Kashko moves with his family to Kiev and then Turkey. In Constantinople, Kashko sets up his own private detective agency. 
even in a city more than 2,000 kilometers away. His name carries a certain amount of weight. His business flourishes, but it seems Bolsheviks cannot be outrun. There are rumors that Russian immigrants are going to be extradited back to the motherland. Once more fearing for his safety, Kashko moves his family to Paris. It's here that his distinguished detective career comes to an end. Unwilling to accept French citizenship, he can't carry on with the job he loves, job he was born to do. Despite his career being cut short, more than a century later, Arkady Kashko is still remembered. He's regarded as one of, if not the, finest detectives Russia has ever produced. There's even an award named after him for outstanding work in the field of criminal investigation. Detective Kashko approached every single case with the same tenacity and determination to see justice done. He was like a dog with a bone. He left no stone unturned in his pursuit of the truth, evidenced here to perfection in solving the murder on the Moscow Express. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We're in Beaumont, Texas in 2010 on one of the most surprising murder cases you'll ever hear about. Relentlessly unstoppable private investigator Ken Brennan joins forces with veteran police detective Scott Apple to solve a locked room mystery that's had everyone completely stumped. When Greg Flanagan, a quiet, hardworking landman, is found dead in his hotel room, the cause of death is puzzling. He has massive internal injuries, but there's no sign of a struggle and no clue as to what or who killed him. Fortunately, there are investigators like Ken Brennan who just don't quit until they find the truth. Join us next time on Detectives Don't Sleep for the mystery in room 348.